后。From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening, and welcome to this Friday edition of Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. My pleasure to be with you today on the program. The New York Times is touting the success of an abortion drug that, in 10% of cases, requires further medical interventions. Is the abortion industry encouraging women to take dangerous drugs just to make sure more abortions happen? We'll talk about that story today. In addition, the United Kingdom's Crown Prosecution Services had updated their definition of domestic violence. And it includes not using preferred pronouns and not paying for cross-sex hormones or gender concealment surgeries. Does this mean that parents who don't believe that boys can become girls are now committing domestic violence? We're going to talk about that as well. Finally, are more Americans becoming immune to charges of bigotry and homophobia in the defense of children? Anecdotal evidence from social media suggests this might be the case. We're going to talk about why that might be happening and what that means for the future in our worldview conversation later in the program with David Clausen. But our headline today, President Biden's efforts to convince voters that Bidenomics is working continue today, with the president delivering a White House address on medical costs. The Biden administration aims to limit access to short-term health care plans in order to drive consumers to more expensive Affordable Care Act plans. This is just another example of Bidenomics in action. With 64% of Americans disapproving of the president's handling of the economy and many economists expecting a recession between now and 2024, will the president really stake his reelection campaign on the economy? Joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Ron Estes. He serves on the House Ways and Means Committee, the House Budget Committee, and the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. He represents the 4th Congressional District of Kansas. Congressman Estes, welcome back to Washington Watch. Well, great. It's great to be back. It's good to see you. The president is touting his jobs record. I want to play clip six and give you a chance to respond to this. Today's job shows that uh, I think jobs report, I think, shows that Bidenomics is working. We added 200,000 jobs, I think 209,000 jobs last month. And all told, we've created over 13 million. I think it's 13 million 300,000 in two and a half years. That's more than any president ever created in a four-year term. Congressman Estes, that sounds impressive. Is that what's going on here? Well, he certainly does create a good, impressive, false story with it he's telling. You know, he talks about 209,000 jobs uh, that were started last month. Uh, the experts expected 275,000. So he's already behind in that front, just looking at last month. The other thing he tries to take credit for is he came into office in, in uh, 2021 when the COVID vaccine was out and was the economy was starting to open up. So he's taking credit for all the jobs that are incurred uh, as people going back to work after the COVID shutdowns. If you do a realistic analysis and look at a comparison of the trend line when President Trump was in office, he's still two million short of where we would have been based on the growth in population in the United States. And uh, the the workforce participation rate is down 0.7% from where it was during President Trump's term. So he, he's trying to take credit and make it sound like it's a positive thing from, from what he's doing, but but it's really uh, overlapping and trying to to steal from the recovery from COVID shutdowns. You mentioned there the workforce participation rate. There seems to be this strange phenomenon where our employment rate is actually low, according to the data. But we also have this strange situation where employers can't seem to find anybody to work. So everybody seems to be working, but there's still nobody working. When you go to a lot of businesses, they are short on employees. Is that a function of the fact that millions of Americans have just withdrawn from the workforce? Well, it, it, it is a faction of that. And, and the, the, the common workforce participation rate, unemployment rate that's used out there uh, is uh, it, it's a bad number to be to be relying on. There's there's several different numbers that are calculated. Uh, this one, the unemployment rate that's used is uh, commonly called the U3. And and it it really changes month to month based on the number of people that say they're out looking for work. So if people stop looking either because they've given up 
or because uh, they've taken disability or other things. It's not a true reflection of the number of Americans and the number of people that could be working. And so it, it really is distorted. I think we ought to use the, the U6 number, which is a, a different unemployment rate calculated on the entire population of the United States. And so uh, we'd get a more accurate reflection of what's truly going on. And if we do that, how does that, what, what does that tell us about where we're at right now? Well, what that would reflect is that uh, that there's more, uh, uh, the unemployment rate is actually uh, higher because more people are out looking uh, for work and and that and being reflective of not working. And so uh, that would show up as uh, there's more people available to fill those jobs. But one of the problems we've got is we've got so many uh, benefit programs that are out there that don't require work. You know, so a lot of our, our SNAP and the food stamp program and some of the other uh, uh, welfare benefit programs uh, don't require uh, workforce participation. And and that's one of the things that we got changed in the, the debt limits, uh, the Fiscal Responsibility Act that was out there was that states need to enforce those those work provisions so that people can get back to work and we'll, we can have the work, uh, an active workforce to help our economy grow. We're talking to Congressman Ron Estes from Kansas. Congressman, you have talked a lot about the threat from the national debt recently. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office now projects that in 30 years, U.S. debt will grow to $144 trillion or $1 million, $1 million per household, more than four times the median household net worth. What would that mean for our country? Oh, it, it, it'll be a devastating aspect for our country. You know, right now, what's going on is that the overspending that the federal government's doing. I mean, this fiscal year alone, uh, we're going to spend $1.5 trillion more than what's brought in. And actually, tax receipts are up uh, after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So we're actually having more tax revenue coming in, but the spending is not being halted. And <clears throat> as a result, the debt continues to grow. The deficit continues to grow in spite of the story that uh, President Biden tries to say. Uh, he's continuing to grow the deficit uh, every year. And and what that, what that reflects is that uh, we're spending money to fund the lifestyle today that people want to live. And we're, we're mortgaging our kids and grandkids and great grandkids future because they're going to have to pay it back. And they're not going to get the advantages of the, the spending that's being spent on people's lifestyle today. And so that's, that's going to limit their opportunities to, uh, uh, go, to go to college, uh, go to make an investment, buy a house, buy a car, uh, or for businesses to be able to invest in the, the plants and equipment that actually have good paying jobs so that they can have good income as well. So the, the, our debt and deficit's a, a major problem that we've got to overcome. And when we did the Fiscal Responsibility Act, it was the first time that we'd actually made a stab at, at lowering spending from the prior year. And we've got more work to do. We, we, we're not going to solve it all in one year. Uh, as we're working on the appropriations for fiscal 2024 now, <clears throat> we're looking at spending at the fiscal 2022 levels. So literally uh, a little over a year and a half ago, we were spending at these levels. And, and that's what we ought to look at for the future is how do we get this spending curve back in line with our tax revenue? And suddenly it's described as a crisis if we go back to our 2022 spending levels. But Congressman Estes, President Biden seems to indicate that he sees some benefit in reducing the deficit. Let's play clip six. Today's job shows that uh, I think jobs report, I think, shows that Bidenomics is working. We added 200,000 jobs, I think 209,000 jobs last month. And all told, we've created over 13 million, I think it's 13 million, 300,000 in two and a half years. That's more than any president ever created in a four-year term. Actually, that was the wrong clip. I want to go ahead and play clip number five, and then I'm going to let you respond to that. By the way, parenthetically, I want you to you're going to hear about the deficit. I cut the deficit $1.7 trillion in two years. Nobody's ever done that. Cut the debt $1.7 this generates income. It generates growth. Congressman Estes, if cutting the deficit generates income, it generates growth, why is he reluctant to do more of that? Well, cutting the deficit would, would generate growth, but he, that's not what he did. 
I mean, what he's trying to say there is that he's taking credit that instead of spending as much when COVID shut down the country, he didn't spend as much. However, he still spent $1.5 trillion this fiscal year, more than what was being brought in as revenue. So he's he's still increasing the deficit, increasing the debt for the country. In fact, the budget that he proposed uh, just three months ago increased the deficit and the debt by another $17 trillion over the next 10 years. So he's, he's really comparing apples to oranges when he's saying, well, he's not spending as much as what happened during the COVID pandemic. Uh, and, th and that is true. But what he doesn't tell you is that during his two and a half years in office, he spent $6 trillion more than what's been brought in as tax revenue. And, and that's the piece that that's really causing the debt, really causing the problems for us as uh, uh, as we move forward in the country and, and making sure that they're they're limiting the economic growth opportunities out there. Congressman, that's just a new topic for you. Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen was in China today. She's been critical of the Chinese leadership and their treatment of American businesses operating in China. What's going on there? Well, she's she's right in terms of if that 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 comment's right that the Chinese uh, Communist Party doesn't treat U.S. businesses appropriately. You know, they they restrict what they do. Uh, earlier in the year, they were out uh, over uh, taking over. U.S. companies and, and taking over the operations and dictating what they could do. Uh, we, we've known this for decades, uh, that they're willing to steal intellectual property, uh, that they, they don't agree with agreements that, that have been out there. And, and the problem is that the, the Biden administration hasn't really stepped up to, to address this. President Trump was the first president who actually did things to, to stand up to China, even though presidents before him, Republican and Democrat, uh, talked about uh, problems with China, but they didn't. They weren't willing to face it, and and so when President Trump did the phase one of the trade agreements with China and actually held them accountable to to following the laws and 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 being restrictive in terms of of the the inappropriate behavior and or and or in some cases outright theft of intellectual property, the Biden administration was supposed to follow up with phase two. And they haven't done anything on phase two uh, dealing with China and addressing that. And that's a piece that we need to continue moving forward on that because uh, the the whole process and uh, it's highlighted one by President Trump, but also by COVID that uh, we've become too dependent upon China. Uh, you know, at one point in time, 85 to 90 percent of our medical and pharmaceuticals were coming out of China uh, and our protective equipment was coming out of China. Uh, and so many of our you know, the shortages that we're seeing today with semiconductors is because we've been relying too much on on production out of China, and, and they halt that at a whim. Uh, earlier this week, we saw that uh, they announced that they're they're going to restrict minerals uh, from being uh, sent around the world that actually get used to make semiconductors. So uh, it, it's a it's a strategic game they're playing, uh, trying to give an advantage to themselves. And, and putting the United States and other countries at risk. So we've, we've got to stand firm on terms of what we do. And, and I'm glad to see that the secretary is actually saying some of the right things, uh, but now we've got to follow up and do the right things to, to hold them accountable. And that is part of the reason that you, Congressman Estes, are sponsoring legislation that would uh, reduce our dependence on China for research and development. And we appreciate your foresight in doing so. And thank you so much for your time today as well. Thank you very much. It's a good opportunity to talk to you. Coming up next, a recent study on the effects of chemical abortion paints a disturbing picture of the harm these drugs can cause mothers. But it seems the abortion industry is pushing it anyway. We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us. Today, more than ever, men need a reminder of what biblical manhood looks like and to understand God's good design for them, to serve as provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. They need a battle plan to truly live out their role. Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Kirtan's book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers this battle plan so that men can pursue their God-given responsibility in a culture quickly turning away from God's design. The authors unpack the Old Testament book of Joshua as the focus of their study, asking readers to look to his leadership to help consider and apply the key principles of biblical manhood. It's time for men to accept their role in the family and community and truly embrace their 
their God-given purpose. To order your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Again, that's frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be disciples their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. A recent study of women who self-managed chemical abortions found that nearly one in four of these patients sought additional medical treatment. This includes 9% who needed a medical intervention, such as antibiotics, IV treatment, blood transfusions, or an extended hospital stay. We know these procedures are never safe for the baby, but what can we make of almost 10% failure rates for the health of the mother? Joining me now to discuss this and more is Dr. Christina Francis, Chief Executive Officer, Officer excuse me, of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Dr. Francis, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. First, tell us about this study and your reaction to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for having me here. And and as you said, I'm CEO at AppLog and also a board certified OBGYN and, and also have experience actually working in the developing world. I, I spent three years working at a mission hospital in rural Kenya. And so when I looked at this study, it really hit home with me because this study was actually part of a larger study that was done in three different countries. One was Nigeria, uh, one was Argentina, and one was a country in Southeast Asia, notably all of whom have uh, laws that restrict abortion or make it illegal. So this was a study being done on an illegal procedure in countries and in women that were very vulnerable. What they did was they took women or even girls, actually, girls as young as 13, who called into an abortion advocacy hotline and uh, wanted to self-manage their abortion and then did follow-ups with them via phone at one week and three weeks. And there's a number of problems with the study, actually, that, that I could go into, you know, from a, from a quality standpoint of the study. Uh, but what it showed was really not what is being reported. I know there was an article in the New York Times about this and that it's very safe to do it in the second trimester. What it showed, as you said, was that a full 25% of women and girls sought additional medical treatment. Now, they tried to state in the study that that was just because they wanted to know if their abortions had been completed. But when you delve deeper, you actually see that a significant portion of them experienced complications and a significant portion didn't follow up. So they actually don't know if those women had made complications or not. You know, Dr. Francis, I think the coverage of this story is just as insightful as the as the study itself. And, and I want to 
uh, help people understand the coverage of this. And you mentioned that New York Times article. We actually have that headline here that I want to throw up on the screen for those who are watching. The headline heading of this story is Mifepristol alone safely engages pregnancies after 10 weeks, studies suggest. So the word safely is in the head is in the title of the article. But then the article goes on to point out that at least 10% of the women had a follow-up procedure uh, because there was an incomplete abortion or some other kind of complication. Now, are we redefining what safely means if it goes badly for at least 10% of the women involved? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the abortion industry continues to shout that these um, these procedures are safe. And as you stated, they're never safe for my fetal patient, but they're also oftentimes very dangerous for my maternal patients as well. And they can say that it's safe all they want, but they need the data to back that up. And the bottom line is that the data simply doesn't. As you said, a significant portion of women uh, needed additional treatment and they really don't delve into how many women needed blood transfusions, how much blood. And again, I can tell you from my experience working in Kenya, which I'm sure is not that different from the place where, where these women were, women did not have access oftentimes to emergency surgical services, to blood transfusions, to life-saving treatment. We lost women because we didn't have adequate blood products in our hospital in Kenya sometimes. And so that's not an uncommon thing to happen. And 10%, especially when you look at the numbers of abortions that occur in this country every year that are done via these dangerous drugs, 10% of that number is a huge number of women to potentially be experiencing complications. The other thing that I would say that really disgusted me about this study is that it really preyed on vulnerable women. They paid women up to $25 uh, to participate in the study in a place like Nigeria. That's a significant amount of money. So that's very financially coercive. And like I said, they enrolled girls as young as 13. We do not have safety data on these drugs in girls that young. And, you know, at Applog, we really advocate for not only for our patients to receive excellent health care, but that they receive fully informed consent. How does a 13-year-old without parental involvement talking to someone who's not even a medical professional on the phone receive fully informed consent? And in fact, in the study, they state that they obtained verbal consent from all of the participants, but they have no record of that. There's no written record that consent was ever given. So there's a number of issues with this study, but as you point out, it does not show that these drugs are safe. Again, it's never safe for our fetal patients, causes significant complications for women. And, you know, as a physician who cares deeply about my patients, all of my patients, I believe that they deserve excellent health care that improves their health, not something that's going to harm them. Dr. Francis, uh, give us some context here. If someone else went to the FDA with a drug and said, we just did a study and it turns out it does what it does safely for 90% of the women, but causes complications for 10% of them, what would the FDA's response to that be? Would they label this a safe drug? Well, you know, it there's there's a lot of nuance to that. It kind of depends, you know, we're always looking at a risk to benefit ratio. So if you're treating a, a life-threatening illness like cancer and you have a 10% complication rate, but you get a significant increase in survival, that might be worth a 10% complication rate. However, what we're talking about here is not healthcare. We're not treating a disease. Pregnancy is not a disease. This is something that's being given to end a natural process. And I would say no complication rate is acceptable in that situation because we're not talking about treating an illness or improving a woman's health. We're talking about electively ending the life of her child. And so we definitely should not be calling something that has a 10% complication rate at best, although I would say the way they designed the study, they really maximized their results in, in the way they recruited patients. And so at best, a 10% complication rate for something that is not treating an illness, not improving health outcomes is completely unacceptable. And Dr. Francis, in about 15 seconds, are you concerned that they're gonna use this to push this on women in America and create complications in the pursuit of abortion? Oh, absolutely. And we've already been hearing that, you know, people are saying that if mifepristone doesn't become, it becomes unavailable in certain states, that they'll encourage women to do mesoprostol alone abortions, which we know have higher rates of complications even. And so this is not safe, but yet these lies are being told to women. Dr. Christina Francis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me.
Coming up, a report from the UK where disturbing new guidelines could lead to the arrest of parents who do not pay for their children's gender mutilation surgeries. Disturbing story. We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Have you seen the Now We Live series? It is a six-week worldview Bible study created in partnership with Family Research Council and Summit Ministries. This video series was put together to help Christians propel faith into action. It offers six free videos to prompt rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions among churches, small groups, and families. Each video is led by well-known Christian voices and addresses questions regarding worldview, Jesus, truth, identity, and society. It's so important for Christians to both know the truth and to live in a way that is compatible with the truth. Being grounded in what is true and living out God's grace allows a believer's faith to truly transform one's own life and ultimately help transform a broken world. Equip yourself and other Christians to learn more about what it means to truly hold a biblical worldview. Access this important series by going to frc.org worldview. Again, go to frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. In recent years, Christians have seen an accelerated assault on not just our core beliefs, but also our very foundation. Now is the time to build up that foundation. We hope you'll join us September 15th through the 17th in Washington, D.C. for our Pray, Vote, Stand Summit, a national gathering of spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives, or SAGE cons. Registration is open for that event. I'm excited to be part of that. I'm going to do a mixer with high school and college students on Friday evening. I hope you will bring your high school or college student with you. Come yourself, bring your family, bring your friends. It's going to be a great event. You can visit prayvotestand.org for details and to register for that great event. We'll see you there. The United Kingdom's Crown Prosecution Service, essentially England's version of the Department of Justice, recently updated its guidelines for prosecutors to help judge whether to charge a person with domestic violence. Now, among the offenses include, quote, withholding money for transitioning and, quote, refusing to use their preferred name or pronoun. Yes, it is now considered domestic violence to not pay for your child's sterilization or mutilization or to not pretend that your son is a daughter, for example. Will police go door-to-door to enforce this outrageous breach of parental rights? Joining me now from London to discuss this is Peter McElvena. He's the co-founder of Hearts of Oak, a freedom of speech alliance, and he works in the office of the UK's House of Lords. Peter, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you. You've been on the program before to highlight how The UK is facing so many of the same issues that we experience here in the US, but this latest CPS guidance seems to take it even further. Tell us a bit more about it. Yes, it's quite embarrassing coming on talking about this because it shows that we've hit peak insanity in the UK. And what we are seeing is the the guidelines uh, being updated. And this has been an ongoing debate within the so-called Conservative Party, uh, certainly for the last couple of years. Uh, and they promised they would update the guidance and give 
parents protection, give teachers protection against some of the nonsense that's happening. But in the latest updates, which you've seen, and there are further updates specifically on the education side, there are zero protections. Um, They said they're working on guidelines, but simply within everything they put down in the current legislation, that if you do not use the pronoun that a child decides that day, then you can be punished. And we have had a number of teachers lose their jobs, not only in the UK, but in Ireland as well, for simply using their own pronouns. In one case, a parent said, uh, good morning, girls. And it was a class of girls. And one of them had decided they were a boy. And at that point, the teacher got disciplined for being so awful enough to use a pronoun which was not accepted by all the children. Yeah, Yeah, you know, this is interesting because in the States, when we hear the term domestic violence, something very specific comes to mind, I think. And it's spousal abuse. Very often, uh, a husband toward his wife or a boyfriend toward his girlfriend is the most common context. And the police will come and intervene to protect uh, the the wife from the abusive husband, for example. Is this a case where phone calls will be made to report instances of domestic violence and the police will go to a home to, to determine whether, in, whether or not, in fact, a parent is refusing to use a preferred pronoun and make an arrest on that basis? Well, they would have to. They would have to uphold the law. That's what the police are there for, to uphold the law passed in our legislative uh, chambers in Parliament. Uh, so we, uh, this is a, a massive encroachment on parental rights, but it is what is happening in what we call hate speech in the UK. And uh, we have legislation going through which will clamp down on even more. And now a word that is perceived as hateful is therefore hateful. It's all in the perception. It's all subjective. There's nothing written down that says these words are acceptable, these words aren't, and it is like 1984 Newspeak. Um, if you what you say is perceived as offensive or someone believes it may be perceived. So, Joseph, you may say something to me privately and uh, someone else may overhear that and they may decide that someone somewhere at some time may be offended by that. And that is enough to report you for a hit offence for hate speech. Um, and that is uh, that is all in the legislation. We've had 110,000 people actually on the, a register for hit incidents, which are terms that may lead to a crime, pre-crime. It is a very dangerous, slippery slope we find ourselves in. Peter, we've only got about a minute left. Do you find or perceive broad public support for uh, new laws like this in the UK? No, the problem is people are afraid. The problem is, especially the trans lobby, are extremely vicious. You obviously see what Antifa do in the US. We don't have that level of violence, but there is intimidation, there is fear. No one wants to be branded a homophobe or a transphobe. And that um, that shuts down the debate, one. But also, two, it is... Um, it is using language which has never been used before, and people are confused. People hear all this, and they are told they must fit in. We've just had the month of Pride, obviously. Uh, we're told we must fit in, we must accept, we must be good citizens. And being good citizens is not hurting someone, is not causing offence. And that means you do not want to be perceived as someone that has hit on someone else. And therefore, the term hit speech really silences the whole debate. So it is fear from the public, um, fear of being branded anything which they are not. Peter McIlvaina, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Joseph. And the concern for us, of course, is that that kind of policy will extend across the pond here to the States. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about Are we prepared to push back and stop that from happening? We'll talk about it next when we return here on Washington Watch. Are you prepared to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth? It is imperative that Christians pray for their community and culture to steward their role as a citizen by voting and to stand for biblical truth. This means that Christians must be intentional about seeking after the Lord in all things. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to inspire brothers and sisters in Christ to turn their attention to the Lord first and in every compartment of their lives. 
Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly half-hour program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. Watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts and commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. Just go to PrayVoteStand.org. Again, that's PrayVoteStand.org. Tech censorship is on the rise. Big tech companies are attempting to cancel conservatives and Christians, which is why here at Family Research Council, we've decided to be proactive so that big tech cannot silence us completely. FRC has a text subscription platform to be sure we can continue to keep you in the loop. That way you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone. Just sign up for our text alerts by texting STAND to 67742. Again, you simply text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues that matter to you. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. You'll have access to content that will help you continue to stand for faith, family, and freedom. And you'll know about opportunities to connect with like-minded communities. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Finding a quality news source today in this media-saturated world can be incredibly difficult. It is important to stay informed on what is going on in the world, but you need a news source you can trust. That is why Family Research Council created The Washington Stand, an online news platform with a mission to provide readers with free, factual news stories, and commentaries all from a biblical worldview. Based in Washington, D.C., our reporters provide reliable information on the most crucial issues of the day, ranging from breaking news on the hottest Supreme Court decisions to details on the latest public education stories, updates to domestic and international religious liberty cases, and more. We want you and your family to stay informed on what is happening in the world that affects faith, family, and freedom. Be encouraged. Be in the know. And stand firm in truth by visiting WashingtonStand.com today. That's WashingtonStand.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony. As I just got done discussing with Peter McElveen in the last segment, the British government is innovating in their assault on parental rights and religious freedom. Where is it coming from? And should we expect it to come here to the States as well? That's how, what we're going to talk about in our conversation. And joining me for that is David Clausen. He's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, good to see you. Good to see you as well, Joseph. So I want to pick up that conversation we were just having uh, with Peter first. And in this idea that it is domestic violence to not use preferred pronouns. We've heard hate speech laws and things like that, and it's offensive and it's discrimination, but it's an acceleration of the of, of the language to say this is actually now a criminal offense. It's domestic violence. It's like taking a pan and hitting someone over the head with it. Where is this idea coming from? Yeah, it, it's a good question, Joseph. And I, I just remember uh, in the debates we had over the marriage issue in the lead up to the Obergefell decision in 2015, uh, people said that, you know, we would never get to a place like this. And it seems that that slippery slope a lot of us warned about is a lot slipperier uh, than maybe even we realized ourselves. Uh, but this this idea uh, of hate speech and preferred pronouns, I think it, it's really coming from uh, the LGBT activists who are exerting massive influence, obviously, across the pond, but in this country as well. And the, the ideology, the philosophical, theological ideology behind it is this idea that your sexual orientation, your gender identity, this is inherently who you are. This is an integral part of you that, that is fundamental to your being. It's part of your ontology. And if, if you don't go along with affirming that and supporting that and championing that, uh, you therefore must not just be outdated in your thinking, you are inherently subversive and bigoted and, and should not be allowed in polite society. And, and that's a dangerous place for us to get in our civil discourse. And you are, in fact, dangerous if you d- disagree with the uh, government's narrative on this. And in an effort to make a connection to another news story this week, on the 4th of July, a federal judge in Louisiana 
issued an opinion and gave an injunction prohibiting the federal government from uh, communicating with big tech companies because, and he, he actually referenced 1984 in his ruling, basically saying that the federal government had become something of a ministry of truth. And if you've read 1984, uh, that is not a compliment. It's very dystopian. But this idea that the, the government is the official arbiter of what is true, anyone who disagrees with that is punished. We see that metastasizing over here into the criminal realm as well. It's not just telling big, big tech companies to amplify certain messages that they like and suppress messages they don't like. It's now saying, you parents, if you won't pay for the surgery that would remove the genitals of your children, you are now guilty of domestic violence. Why is it, David, that those ideas, and you mentioned the fact that this you know, back in 2015, in ancient history, right, when Obergefell <laughs> happened and marriage was redefined, we were assured that there would be no implication beyond the fact that uh, same-sex couples could now be married and enjoy the legal rights of, of marriage. Why is it that ideas never just stay in one place? Why do they always seem to grow? Yeah, that's right, uh, Joseph. They, they do grow. Ideas have consequences. We've been saying that for a long time. And it's interesting, specifically on these issues we're talking about, I like to call it the moral revolution, and, and the moral revolution is picking up velocity. And, and Joseph, the, the logic of these things really go together. If you can redefine something as basic to civil society as marriage, well, why can't you also redefine what it means to be human? Uh, it, why can't you redefine what it means to be male and female? And so, again, as we get untethered and unmoored from uh, even remote understanding of kind of Western civilization influenced by a biblical worldview, uh, then other ideas are going to rush in and fill that void. And as our culture increasingly is less biblically literate, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that these secularized ideas are going to, to fill that void. And you're, you're seeing that. Uh, and again, the, 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 Carl Truman's written a really helpful book called The, the Triumph of the Modern Self. And the, the ideas he talks about in that book this idea that uh, the, the autonomous individual, the autonomous self, is the sole arbiter of truth, it, it, that, that idea, if, if it takes hold in a society, if it takes hold in a culture, then who are you or who is anyone to say this is what marriage is or this is what it means to be a boy or a girl or a male or a female? And, and I think these ideas spread kind of like a cancer. And so, again, ideas that we're talking about now, Joseph, whether a parent could be criminally liable for refusing to go along with a surgery or the idea that a state like California could take custody of a minor child who, who wants to get these irreversible surgeries, uh, it would have been unthinkable a couple of years ago, but we find ourselves there because these ideas have legs and they're, they're spreading rapidly. And, and we talk about this domestic violence redefinition in the UK because we're concerned that that's going to uh, reach us very soon. But there's another development worth talking about happening in the UK right now. Right. According to Christian Concern, thousands of schools in the UK have classroom material that not only promote the LGBT agenda to students as young as five years old, but they also claim that it is compatible with Christianity Judaism and Islam, and effectively, the government schools there are teaching theology, but a brand new version of theology that says all this LGBTQ stuff is actually consistent with the historic religions, regardless of what all the adherents to those historic religions might tell you. What are we to learn from this? Yeah, I think this is a warning, Joseph, because here in the United States, we know that groups like the SPLC and Planned Parenthood are wanting access to the public school system uh, and wanting access to curriculum. And we sh those of us here in the United States should take a uh, clear uh, example for what's happening in the UK, because there is an organization, it's called Just Like Us. Uh, Fox News had a story about this today, so I looked into it a little bit. Just Like Us, it was a group founded in 2016, and, and they do two things. One, they do events in schools, uh, and then they also sponsor what's called School Diversity Week. And it just happened, I think, a week and a half ago in the U.K. Uh, students there are still in school. And this uh, School Diversity Week, Joseph, uh, they provide lesson plans and curriculum. Uh, they, they advise on how you can do little pride parades in your classroom. Uh, you can put badges on the students uh, where the students can identify what their preferred pronouns are. 
uh, and it really influences uh, the subject matters too. The math problems, some of the math problems, like if uh, your, your two moms are trying to make a decision, how, how do you help them make the decision? But what was most uh, pernicious, I think, Joseph, is what you just said, is that they have ambassadors, is what they're called for this program, that go into schools and they, they represent themselves as uh, gay Christians or lesbian Christians or gay Muslims or lesbian Muslims. Uh, and they talk to students and how it's okay uh, to be a person of faith and to embrace behaviors and lifestyles and activities that actually run absolutely contrary to these uh, faiths, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Judaism. And apparently, Joseph, according to the report that Fox published today, thousands of schools now in the United Kingdom are using this, uh, inviting this group to come in and put on events uh, and inviting them to br bring their resources and curriculum. And we shouldn't be surprised, Joseph, when the next generation is completely uh, brainwashed and, and taught uh, uh, tenets of Christianity uh, that are absolutely antithetical to what you would actually find on the pages of the Old and New Testament. Now, David, of course, the rules are different here than they are in the U.K. when it comes to church and state. But I can't help but wonder uh, when that movement makes its way here, if the, uh, the protectors of the separation of church and state will be quite as vigilant if the message that is coming from the religious folks is all the rainbow stuff is wonderful, and I somehow suspect that they will be less concerned about religious instruction if that is the religious instruction that they are receiving. But one final question on this topic for you, David. I, I feel like we've seen an evolution in the arguments from the sexual revolution. It began, it seemed to me, to, with the argument that we don't care what God says. But now the argument seems to be, actually, God's on our side. Why is that happening? I think that it's a fascinating observation, Joseph. I've noticed it as well in a lot of these conversations. Uh, I think that there is still an impulse in Western civilization, especially in, in this country particularly, uh, that wants to invoke God, that wants the moral approbation uh, that comes along with being able to say that God or these holy books or these holy scriptures or uh, this tradition of the church is on our side. Uh, in one sense, Joseph, you know, the church is really one of the last holdouts when it comes to the moral revolution. And a, a revolution can't uh, be satisfied unless they've toppled every single institution. And uh, so I think one way that the activists are trying to make this argument is, well, actually, God is on our side. Uh, you're just misinterpreting your own holy books. You're misinterpreting the scripture. We saw Matthew Vines do this in 2015 with his book. And those arguments have just become more aggressive, Joseph. And, and I just want to say, obviously, uh, I, I'm, I lead our Center for Biblical Worldview. Uh, FRC has resources to help people think about these issues from the perspective of the Bible. And obviously, the Bible couldn't be more clear on these issues. But I think a lot of activists still uh, want to invoke God because they, they believe it gives them still a little bit more of cultural cachet in some settings. Yeah. They are making the argument now in theological terms. Therefore, it is completely appropriate for us to make the counter-argument in theological terms, yes. and shame on us if we are not equipped to do so. But, yep. David, there's one other story that happened this week that I think might illuminate uh, whether or not we are prepared to respond to this. CBS News did a, did a story, and I saw it on Twitter for the first time, and it was one of those feel-good videos, and we kind of all know it's like the— it was supposed to be one of those feel-good videos where, you know, dad's coming home from this, from uh, serving abroad and he, you know, meets his son at a school, uh, at a school assembly and they cry and everybody's really happy, right? That was kind of where I think they were going with this video, except what was happening is this baby girl had been removed and she was just born. You could tell that she was minutes old and she had been walked out of a delivery room to the to the uh, kind of uncomfortable but waiting arms of two men who were in a relationship with each other and they were apparently the adoptive parents. And the goal of this was to just get the world excited about this feel-good story. But it was surprising because that video, which uh, at least on Twitter had been viewed 31 million times, which is a remarkable number, I was really surprised by the response to that. It seemed like a lot of people, while there were certainly people, you know, the LGBT crowd who were saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? A huge number of the response to that uh, was critical, was recognizing the fact that this is actually not good 
for that girl. Um, these two gentlemen undoubtedly have good intentions, but it is not good for a girl to be guaranteed that she will never have the influence of a mother in her life, whether it's her biological mother or an adoptive mother. She will permanently be denied a mother. And it seems a growing number of Americans, at least on Twitter, which is, of course, very public, are willing to say that. Is that a change in recent years, do you think? Yeah, Joseph, I was encouraged by that. I actually did a little bit of digging into this. Uh, that video is actually six years old. It, you wouldn't have known that uh, by looking at the video on CBS, but it was a part, it was aired on CBS, but it actually tells the story. Uh, so the footage that people saw was six years old. Uh, those two gentlemen are, are still legally married, uh, are actually activists in the LGBT, com LGBT community. You can see pictures of them. Uh, uh, one post I saw, they brag about taking their daughter to a drag queen at, when she was six years old a drag queen show, that is. But as far as the actual response, I was encouraged, Joseph. And I, I think the reason people, again, the, 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 most of the comments on there was, the, you know, this is unnatural, this is sad, this is shameful, uh, this is self-centered. Uh, you can see that this baby's been ripped from the arms of her biological mother. This is an injustice. Uh, I think a lot of people looked at that, Joseph, and, and realized uh, what any of us uh, should realize is that Every child deserves a mother and a father. This is the arguments we made last fall when the so-called Respect for Marriage Act was being debated in Congress. Every child deserves access to their biological mother and their biological father. And you just saw in this video with background music to boot, uh, something that looks so unnatural. And we shouldn't re uh, lose our reflex, Joseph. Uh, if you saw that video and your reflex was, wow, something seems off, this doesn't seem natural, this doesn't seem okay, that's a proper reaction because when you push against the created order, Joseph, you're going to see things like this uh, that are, it's not how it's meant to be. This is not how God meant marriage and this is not uh, how God meant children to be raised in families. Um, and so I think the natural impulse a lot of us had is the appropriate reaction. And it seems to me to be a grow growing reaction. There's been a lot of discussion about grooming. Uh, sometimes yeah. it's appropriately used. Sometimes it probably isn't. We've seen Target uh, sell trans onesies, which is, you know, inappropriate in any context. I don't know how you try to defend that. We've also seen basically cartoon pornography introduced to very young children and a lot of middle of the road, normal, not extremist, right wing evangelical Americans look at that stuff and they say, that's not good for kids. And so it seems to me and I hope that this is true, is there is this growing immunity in the public to these accusations of homophobia and bigotry when it comes to protecting kids. And it seems to me, and you can tell me if you agree with this, that a growing number of Americans are willing to say, I will endure your scorn on behalf of children, and they're recognizing that's what this has come down to. Do you agree with that assessment? I do agree. Look at the backlash against Bud Light. Look at the backlash against Target. Uh, look at the backlash uh, against other corporations who have moved this direction. Look at the backlash of parents pushing back against this kind of content in schools. And so I do think the other side, Joseph, has overplayed its hand. And I think uh, hope and just the issue with women competing in sports or, the, uh, or biological men competing against biological women, I do think the left's overplaying their hand. And I do hope, Joseph, uh, that we'll see some of this start uh, coming back uh, from the, the edge of this cliff. David Clausen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, it's my been, been my pleasure to be with you this week. Tony will be back with you on Monday. Want to make sure you're aware of another project I'm part of here at FRC. I'm the host of Outstanding. It's our new podcast that you can find wherever podcasts are Found. I hope you'll join us for the continued conversation there. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.